Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do tell your friends, family, and colleagues about the show. It makes a big difference indeed. If you enjoy the episodes that you're listening to week after week, do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today we have an extremely heartwarming interview with Zane Wildman, who is the co-founder of the Ubuntu Life Foundation. Zane is both an ordained priest and an accomplished social entrepreneur. He shares his personal story of self-discovery and faith with us and his journey from Texas to Kenya as he set up the Ubuntu Life Foundation and its extremely successful social enterprise spin-off, Ubuntu Life, a venture, interestingly enough, that's been recognized by both Oprah and savvy social investors alike. Now, the Ubuntu Life Foundation works in Kenya and caters for children with special needs around education and health. And in just a few days' time on the 2nd of July, They'll be opening in Kenya a leading special needs hospital and school, and we'll hear all about that as well. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed producing it for you. And so, Zane, without further ado, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you, Alberto. Great to be here, man. Excellent. So you're out there in Kenya. I'm here in the UK. It's uh, it's good to see you, and uh, I have to say we never met before, but it's good to meet you over Zoom. And why don't we start by finding out a little bit about the Ubuntu Life Foundation? What's that all about? Well, the Ubuntu Life Foundation, what it's, what it's about is basically, really, it's an origin story of discovery. So for me, um, I'd always wanted to, you know, when I was finishing school, uh, finishing university, I was questioning the meaning of life. I don't know, you know, Alberto, like, why are we here? Who is God? Where do I fit into to the world? Um, I didn't really have this idea of, oh, I want to start a foundation that focuses on special needs, health and education in somewhere in Africa. It didn't start that way. It started really a more raw, more organic, which is who am I? What's my place in the world? Um, and I wanted my life to have meaning. Um, and so what I ended up doing, this is back in 2000, I bought a one-way ticket. Um, and I moved to Kenya. I'd never been to anywhere in Africa before. I'd never been a minority before. I'd never seen real poverty before. So you can imagine, again, think about what the world was like in 2000, social media. There was no social media. Yeah. Right. The, the internet was brand new. I think I got my Hotmail account right before, right before, I, right before I came to Kenya that year. Um, and so when I was here, I was just fully immersed. And I was working as a med tech. I ended up getting a job working as a med tech at a mission hospital uh, called Kajabi Hospital, um, about an hour and a half northwest of Nairobi. And about two months into my time, I went down 2,000 feet below Kajabi to a town called Maimaihu to administer some medications and uh, to distribute food at an orphanage. Um, and while I was there, I met the, the director of the orphanage. His name was Jeremiah Kodia. And he was a local um, and he had this amazing, you know, you meet people in your life that just have a special radiance ab about them and meeting Jeremiah one, he had this incredible energy radiating from him, but also in such a desperate uh, situation, uh, the pot, you know, the poverty level of my mind, was just something I'd never seen before. 
And so I couldn't get that experience out of my head when I went back up to the mission, um, to the hospital. And I was like, still again, what is my purpose? What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? And I was like, that seemed like a ringside seat to the meaning of life, what Jeremiah was doing. And so I ended up going back down by myself weeks later, connected with him. We had this really just awesome conversation, uh, very, very organic, um, no real end in mind. And I was like, what, what can I do to help? And he said, you know, well, let's just get to know each other. So we ended up having, he was like, let's have lunch on Thursday. So we ended up having lunch every Thursday for over a year. And with these conversations that we had really birthed what is the Ubuntu Life Foundation. Um, and the, the, the themes that we kept coming back to, uh, other than meaning of life, purpose, you know, God, love, community, was the people in parts of the world like Kenya are just as hungry to change their lives as we are in the West. Most of them just lack the opportunities to be empowered to do something about it. Um, and so that was it. That was kind of the genesis of Ubuntu. We're going to, we don't know what those opportunities will be. We were kind of opportunity agnostic, um, but we were committed to one another. We were committed to the community of Maimayu and we're committed, committed to commu- you know, creating opportunities that empower the local community. We quickly discovered that the most underserved community within this area of Kenya um, were children with special needs. And it was really eye-opening and shocking for me, someone growing up middle-class Texas, where I had kids with special needs in my class, whether that was physical or mental. We, you know, had the Special Olympics, like, you know, there were, you know, Ronald McDonald House, like all these things that there were services for, for that part of the Western community. And in Kenya, the story I heard was just horrific, you know, that, and basically, if you're a mother who has a child with special needs, God is basically punishing you for some sin um, that you've committed. And so God's giving you this child as, as a, as a punishment to your sin. And so I just couldn't believe this. So most of these kids weren't even registered as citizens in the, in the country um, because they were seen as that much of an outcast. Um, And so Jeremiah and I were like, okay, we're going to do something about this. And so that's how we started. We started very small, very organic, no money, both of us doing it for free. Um, and then we just gained momentum. And, you know, um, we, you know the focus has been and, and is to this day is basically the opportunities that we're creating for these children are educational and health opportunities. Um, so present day, with the, we're, we are actually opening uh, on July 2nd. The, it'll be Kenya's you know, leading special needs uh, hospital and school um, in the entire country. The 20,000 square foot center. Uh, we currently employ the only medical doctor in the town of Maimayu, um, Dr. Joy. Um, and we have the only um, physical and occupational therapist um, in the community as well. Remarkable. And you're talking to, you're talking to us from the facilities of this wellness center. That's due to launch on yes, the 2nd yeah. of July. That's right. I was telling you, Alberta, that this is actually the first official Zoom call in, in the new CWC. Yeah. It's an impressive building. And the Ubuntu Life Foundation, so it's a 501c3 in the U.S. It's a, a public charity and also the equivalent in Kenya. Correct. Um, interesting. So that was, that was the first 
entity that you you guys uh, founded. And then subsequently from that, you launched a commercial venture that's purely for the benefit of the foundation. Tell us about that, also known as, as uh, Ubuntu Life, and it's a, a public benefit corporation um, in Texas and, and also in Kenya, I guess. Yeah, and it was funny, you know, this was not our idea, um, which I think, which makes it so special. Um, it was really an opportunity that came out of necessity. So one, and this was around, so we had been running this, this special needs program for about, gosh, at this point, about five years. Um, and then some of the mothers of the children with special needs came to us and they said, hey, and this is before anyone was talking about social enterprise. This is before anyone was talking about social entrepreneurship. No one was talking about social impact investing. So that didn't exist. That vocabulary didn't exist. That, that story didn't exist. So when the mothers came to us and said, hey, now that you're taking care of our kids five days a week, which we're so appreciative of, and they're learning to walk, and they're increasing their motor function and speech function, and like, we now have time on our hands. Like, can you help us with a job? And Jeremiah and I didn't really know what, there was no box for us to put this in. Like, what kind of job? Like, what is this that they're wanting to do? And we said, well, maybe, what is it that y'all want to do? And uh, the, the ladies said that they wanted to sew. And at the same time, we were having donor fatigue, you know, and like a lot of nonprofits are struggling to raise funds always, you know, keeping in donors engaged in one year, two years, maybe, but five years, 10 years is a whole nother story. And so we were trying to think about how are, what, how are other ways that we can get revenue in the door, um, donations in the door, and people just aware of special needs. Special needs, people who are interested in special needs, health and education is a small percentage of, of the global you know, population. And so it's like how to get them p- to pay attention to this cause as well. And so when they said they want to learn how to sew, I was just like, well, huh, I wonder if like, you know, with my background as a priest at this time, I'm like, well, maybe we can make some bags and some things and we could sell it in the church or we could sell it in, you know, some schools. But then, right, we were like, okay, we're going to do this. So we bought a couple of like manual sewing machines and it was hilarious. You know, these are these treadle machines and the women would start on one side of the room and they would end up on the other side of the room because the sewing machine was like moving because they didn't know how to sew. And, but they got to where they could make some pretty decent canvas tote bags um, and these pouches and a few other things. And right around that time, I was actually living in San Jose, California, uh, working at, a, at Trinity Cathedral there as associate priest. And I was walking around Whole Foods and I started noticing this incentive for customers to bring their own shopping bags. And I just thought, man, I wonder if someday, you know, I'm a Texan, Whole Foods started in Austin, Texas. I was like, I wonder if Someday we could get these bags in Whole Foods. Like, I wonder if our moms could make something quality enough that we could get them into Whole Foods. You know, you have these thoughts, but they kind of go in and out of your mind. And um, a year later, um, we got enough funding for me to be able to go full time with, with the foundation. And I'm, I'm, I'm now in Austin. And I ended up, long story short, I ended up bulldogging our way. I actually pretended to be a cupcake delivery guy to get my foot in the door, literally at Whole Foods to get a meeting uh, with the Whole Planet Foundation. Um, and it was, this is right at the time that John Mackey was writing or releasing Conscious Capitalism. And it was just one of those kind of perfect moments where everything lined up. My being in Austin, our, our, we call them our maker mums making quality bags. Um, and then Whole Foods having an appetite for our story. 
you know, with conscious capitalism. And the next thing I know, we went from making like a couple of hundred bags a year to literally like 20 to 30,000 bags, you know, and <laughs> reusable canvas coffee sleeves and our, our beaded love bracelets in every Whole Foods market in the country. Um, and so that then birthed, then that birthed this whole other arm of Ubuntu life, which was a social enterprise. Remarkable. And it's remarkable that the sequencing is such that it's the the it's not a corporate that subsequently launches a foundation, but in this case, it's a foundation that has launched a very successful commercial enterprise. Correct. Yeah, which was like which was um, another opportunity out of necessity because in the beginning, our donors were so excited to see this success and for them to know for every dollar I donate, Ubuntu makes a dollar. And earned revenue through sales. Like at first, it was really exciting, but then it became confusing for our donors. They're like, "Wait, are my donations going to the special needs health and education program? Are they going to marketing and branding for product development?" Right. And so, so then we were kind of like, "Oh gosh, like we need to do something." But I, I didn't know of any businesses that had birthed out of nonprofits. You see all the time businesses make a bunch of money and then they birth a foundation, but there really wasn't a roadmap for us to do this. And so it took us a while, but finally at the end of 2019, we went through all the legal you know, hoops and, and we separated our financial books and we finally split the Ubuntu Life Public Benefit Corporation business entity out as a fashion e-commerce you know, business focused on empowering women and then the nonprofit stayed intact, focused on special needs, health, and education. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So here you have uh, the Ubuntu Life Foundation. You're launching this well-being uh, center in just a few days' time. And your financial footing is uh, a little bit more robust, let's say, than, than when you originally kicked things off uh, a while back. Um, what's the thinking now? So tell me, you're launching this in just a few days. That in itself must be exciting, but must also be a little bit stressful. And where is your thinking as far as the the near medium, uh, near and medium term horizons? Like, where do you see things going now that you're a little bit more self assured and perhaps better funded? I mean, I think with the global economy being <laughs> what it is right now, there's a big level of, of uncertainty. Um, and I think we're still, you know, coming through the, the COVID, um, era, but, you know, last night is a great example, Albert. So I was at a, I was hosted by this, um, we call it EV, EAVCA, um, and it's a East Africa venture capital association. And mm -hmm. this is brand new, this type of conversation happening on the continent at this level. You know, it's been happening on at a, at a smaller level for probably the last five to 10 years. But I mean, last night we're at this event in the middle of downtown Nairobi at the Radisson Blue and hundreds of investors there, a handful, dozens of, of entrepreneurs like myself having conversations about, you know, from fintech to fashion e-commerce to, you know, um, just tech innovation explosion. They call Nairobi the Silicon Savannah. Um, I mean, and Jeremiah and I, you know, my co-founder, I mean, at this point, we're kind of kind of like dinosaurs. The fact that we've been doing this for 22 years, you know, I mean, 
for the first seven years of running Ubuntu from 2000 to 2007, my Mayu didn't have any electricity. You know, we had no hot water. I mean, and now you're we, talking fintech. And now I'm talking fintech and I'm talking with people about investing millions of dollars in the explosive marketplace. They're right now, and I just read this in Quartz Africa yesterday, right now they predict there are about 230 million online uh, retail shoppers on the continent. They're predicting in the next two years, that's going to jump from 230 million to over 550 million. The first 10 years I came here, you were lucky if you got a decent internet connection at a cyber cafe where, I mean, I'd be at a cyber cafe down the street in a town called Navash and I'll never forget it. Like I'm trying, I'm waiting for dial up and a goat, you know, walked in and they're like four, you know, desktop computers that halfway worked. And now I'm in downtown Nairobi with a hundred plus investors talking about million dollar investments in this fast growing tech innovation, you know, society. And so it's, it is where my head, your question was, where my, where is my head at as an entrepreneur, which I've realized that's what I am, you know, and I've gone, I've gone through iterations of who am I, right? This journey started 22 years ago with a desire to have a meaningful life and to discover who God is and, and where do I fit in this world? And, you know, flash forward five years from there, I'm taking bucket showers and I've got a kerosene lantern and, you know, I'm reading books, you know, by the kerosene lantern at night. And, and now there's this insane boom. And Africa is the last frontier of, of business in the world. And the middle class is forming like wildfire at a rapid pace across the continent. And for the first time in the history of the world, the middle class is forming across the continent of Africa. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, and I'm still doing this with my best friend, Jeremiah, you know? And so for me and for Jeremiah, it's just kind of like, man, I think the most important thing, and you and I talked about this spiritual rhythms, you know, I think before we jumped on the podcast, you know, it's like as an entrepreneur, I think my faith has been really important. And for Jeremiah and that it keeps us centered and it keeps us grounded um, it keeps us in the heart of why we started this all in the first place. And it allows you to take in this insane opportunity, right? Opportunities that empower. Before, there are so few. Now, it's like unbelievable. It's like a buffet. And so, so how, how, to, how, to, how to just be strategic in what we say yes to, how to stay true to our, our initial why we started this in the first place. Um, but definitely strategically riding this wave because as an entrepreneur, this is a massive opportunity. Now, those are some phrases I haven't heard in a really long time. Cyber cafe and dial-up, right? <laughs> I can't remember the last time I was looking for a cyber cafe or an internet cafe. And certainly dial-up, you know, the notion of it is alien to my kids. Uh, but yeah. I do remember that funny noise that you made when you were dialing up. Yeah. Um, which, uh, which seems ages ago, but you know, but there you go. But let me ask you, so going back a little bit to the, this great uh, gathering that you had at the Radisson Blue uh, just the, uh, last night. Um, yeah. I know in the world of philanthropy, things are changing, right? So you have next generations coming up. The way people are looking at philanthropy today or the way uh, the younger generation is looking at things in philanthropy today is not the same way that their parents or grandparents were looking at it. 
and you touched on impact investing and uh, um, I'm curious whether the conversations that you're having with these let's quote unquote investors or social investors as well what does that look like because I imagine it's not just somebody saying look here's a check go ahead and do what you do although that I'm sure is part of it I wish but, I wish. All right. But what 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 does it look like when you when you're talking with a business savvy person who's maybe their their head is more on the sort of impact investing or or social investing uh, versus traditional philanthropy? You know, I had to learn this language, um, and I think one of the reasons, you know, as a priest, um, the world of business. Well, two as a priest and as a director and founder of a nonprofit. Um, the world of investment, the world of capitalism, it's a foreign language. The idea of evaluation, post-money, pre-money, cap table, and then there's the whole language of an e-commerce business, customer acquisition costs, ROAS, you know, average order value, like all these things are like, it's foreign language. And I would hear them from people friends of mine who had businesses and, and were raising investment dollars. And I just saw it as like the superior thing, interestingly, to like this, like, I don't know why, but we look at business. I, I mean, it's just me, but we look at nonprofit and church as like this sweet thing. And then you look at businesses like the real thing. Um, and which is a weird deal because really what matters, we all know this, when we die, who did you impact? Who did you love? Who loved you? Right? Like what, what's your legacy? Not how much money did you make? Um, but we live our whole lives thinking capitalism is superior to these other things. And, and I was victim of that too, even though I was a priest, even though I'm running a nonprofit. And so talking to investors and learning that language is really intimidating for me. Um, and, and, you know, getting a $25,000 donation is a, is a solid win for a nonprofit. Um, getting a $25,000 investment as one of the first investors I ever talked to, I was proudly telling him that I raised, I got two $25,000 investments and he, he was a He's like, That's very cute. direct. Very, he, <laughs> he goes, Zane, no offense, but, but that's cats and dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, and, and I, 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 I've gone from that. To last night, you know, toe to toe with these investors talking about our Q1 numbers, talking about, you know, revenue, you know, growth and talking about our expenses. And if we're over budget, under budget, fortunately, we're, we're under budget on our expenses and we're over budget on our, we're on track for revenue. Um, but I'm talking about half a million dollar investments, um, which for social impact investing is solid you know, and, and we have a track record, fortunately, through COVID. I mean, a really good, at the end of the day, like telling a good story that's compelling, that's impacting lives will get you donations. It will definitely not get you an investment. Investment, it is all about mitigating risk and showing data that are showing proven results. Um, and, and that you've got a quality team that can continue to deliver and scale. And I've had to figure out how to live in both of those worlds because my heart is fully, um, and I, I had a mentor, you know, years and years ago who told me, Zane, you know, you got to develop your mind 
to get it, to get you where your heart wants to be. And that was really powerful for me. And it's still there because my heart is, my best day is being in the garden here with our team, our organic farm, with our special needs kiddos, laughing, hugging, playing. But in order to sustain that, we have to develop this mind of our business that is scalable, investable, um, and, and on track to not just change the world, but be a, a leading fashion e-commerce platform in the, in the, on the continent of, of Africa, um, and which is really exciting. So, you know, when I'm talking to investors, we have the results, you know, like a winning e-commerce sales month for us pre for profit. So March, let's just talk facts, March, 2020, the world shuts down. We did about $12,000 in sales that month, um, which was an average month of sales for us as a, as a nonprofit online. In April, the next month, we did, we did $89,000 in sales. In May, we did 110. In June, we did 120,000. By the time Christmas rolled around, we were hitting two hundred. We were hitting a quarter million dollars of sales in a month online. Oprah picked us as part of her holiday favorite things. It for for holiday twenty twenty. She picked our our shoes, our llama mule handmade shoes. So it's just you know you you. And that must have been a big. That must have been a big boost. Huge, huge. I mean, we're one of the first African. We're the first fa- African fashion brand, fashion e-commerce brand that Oprah had ever picked as part of her favorite things, you know? And like, what a, what a, one, what a blessing. Two, what an affirmation that, you know, we're on track to be in this new thing, you know, as Africa is the last frontier of, of business. Like, and here we are, like e-commerce is, is new, you know, on, on the continent, you know, retail, retail e-com is, is a fairly new thing, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Exciting. So we're going to try to go live with this episode right before you launch uh, the center on the 2nd of July. What are we to expect on the launch date? <laughs> so our Kenya team is owning this and it is um, actually some of the team members are moving into the Children's Wellness Center today. Uh, the first day, honestly, I just was down there talking with some of the team. Um, but it's going to be a deal. I mean, and I, it is being a part of this is um, honestly what's happening right now is one of the greatest blessings and gifts of my life because these are children who are the most outcast. When I say that, Alberto, like these mothers would have to chain and lock up their children in their mud huts you know, in their simple homes, because a lot of these kids, you know, Down syndrome, um, severe autism, um, a lot of these children would wander out of the house when the mother had to go work. And so she didn't have, she can't afford childcare. There's no, you know, after school daycare kind of thing. So for these kids, the mother had this painful reality of this child is seen as a curse I can't, it's also a risk to let this child wander out of the house. So they would have to tie their children up in their homes. That's how this started. So what this day is going to be like, I'm going to be a puddle of tears, right? Because we've got 
big government officials will be here because uh, it's such a huge facility. Um, it'll start at the old center because uh, we're moving out of the old facility, which is like 2,500 square feet to a 20,000 square foot legitimate hospital and school. So we're going to start at the old center and talk about where we've come from and what the old story that this town told these women that their children were. And then we're going to have a huge parade through town. We're going to stop in the middle of town with music and we're going to have performances and the kids are going to get up and perform and shine their light of their presence to the whole community, to the whole world and be like, we're, we're just as valid. We're, we have as, as much value in this community as every, everyone else. And then from there, we're going to take the bus and drive about a kilometer to our center that's on the 11 acres of land that I showed you. And here we're going to have a few people talk. We'll do a big ribbon cutting ceremony. And our team has uh, bought two pigeons that are going to fly out of the, <laughs> fly, fly out of the facility. Um, and it's just going to, it's going to be a full day, crazy. I mean, this whole thing has gotten turned 180 degrees, you know, from out, from outcast to fully empowered. Yeah. You should live stream, you know, you should live stream. We are, we are, we're going to live stream. We're going to live stream the whole thing. Yeah, we'll have live streaming on, on the foundation, uh, Instagram and Facebook, and then on the enterprise. What's the handle? What's the social media handle out of one of these platforms? Uh, Ubuntu.life. Okay. And then Ubuntu Life, and then Ubuntu Life, uh, dot foundation. Excellent. Well, then I will be live streaming. Before we, before we wrap things up, and I have to tell you really thoroughly, enjoyed this conversation today uh very inspirational uh, what's your um what's that key takeaway that you'd love for folks to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show you know i think the biggest thing alberto like i had to get over so much questioning of my intuition for a long time right like i shared about the fear of being able to talk to investors right so even as a 40 year old it's still there, right? And I don't think that ever, that voice ever goes away. That like I, you know, I read a great book um, that talks about the upper limit problem. Mm-hmm. That we hit this this voice that tells you, you know, you can't do that. And you know, I remember when I first came to Kenya, everything in me said, "Don't go." And then even my community, you know, Africa was a very was seen as a very different place then. Um, 22 years ago and, you know, had so many people telling me, don't go, it's dangerous. Go become a doctor, then go. Then you actually have something to contribute. I think the thing I would say to listeners is like, one, take time to listen to that voice. And, and two, do your best to create space for it. Don't dismiss it. Um, and, and step through that upper limit problem because, it's, it's the most scary thing you're going to do because it's your most authentic self, but it's also the most exhilarating uh, thing to become. You know, it's what that voice is trying to get out and tell you to be. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Well, look, here's to your continued success. I really uh, wish you well, and I hope it keeps on going from strength to strength. Uh, all the best for the launch in just a few days' time. And, uh, and come back on the show sometime. Would love to, Alberto. Absolutely, man. Thank you. 
Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for joining us. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Zane Wildman, co-founder of the Ubuntu Life Foundation. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It makes a big difference and it helps others to find this show. Thanks so much for joining us and I'll catch you next week.